This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. For any first-time listeners, welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is the show about the intersection of business and social impact, and we hope that you will join us each week as we talk about experts in the field and how their work is making an impact and, of course, what that means for you, the listeners. And I think what's interesting about the approach we're taking um, is that it really is sort of saying this is a new way to think about business. This is a new way to think about how you differentiate your product, how you think about your supply chain, how you think about um, reaching out to different customers that may not have been your immediate thought about who might be your customers. And so it really is a sense of uh, reinvigorating it. It's also really important, and I'm sitting out here looking at um, some students right now, and, and these are your future employees, and they are very interested in this. So there's a lot There's a lot to be learned yes. from so, this. Someone asked me the other day how we were going to uh, capture the listeners for, you know, people – how are you going to capture listeners for people who, this, you know, social impact isn't really a part of their work? Uh-huh. And I said, I can't I, think of anyone on that list. <laughs> you know, it really right. is. So to your point, supply chain customers, you know, even in terms of social impact, your own health. Yeah. How are you buying food, to, you know, with regards to one of our guests today? How are you purchasing products that are good for the environment? And so uh, we do hope whoever you are, you've, you found something of interest here in our intro and that you stick with us today. So we're delighted to jump right in. Sam Polk, founder and CEO of Every Table. Welcome to Dollars and Change. Uh, thanks for having me. Excellent. Where does our, our call find you today, Sam? Uh, in our kitchen in Los Angeles, California. Ah. Very hard. So you're actually in the kitchen, chopping oh, yeah, and slicing, multitasking. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's start at the very beginning, as we so often do. Every Table. How did this business get started? Yeah, so um, my background was I was basically a hedge fund trader that, you know, had a sort of moment of conscience and was reading a lot of civil rights stuff. And so quit that world and came back to Los Angeles and started um, working in the nonprofit space uh, on the issue of food deserts. And basically, you know, what I learned is like there's neighborhoods like South Los Angeles, which have per capita income of $13,000 a year and life expectancy 12 years lower than more affluent parts of the city. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And the main one is food which is that there's no healthy, fresh food around. Right. So we basically decided to create a business that would make healthy food um, more affordable and accessible for everyone. And I imagine it hasn't been a straight line from that <laughs> moment of inspiration to the kitchen you stand in today, uh, you know, prepping for the, the large business that now is Every Table. Talk to us a little bit about that entrepreneurial journey that got you from that moment of conscience to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing was sort of um, venturing into neighborhoods that, you know, I was sort of unfamiliar with at first. And I think a lot of, you know, what happens in the social impact space and just just in business in general is people focus on what they know. And one of the problems with that is that, you know, funding is primarily sort of given to, you know, affluent sort of Caucasian males, basically. And so you see like a lot of businesses starting in competition for basically that dollar, the sort of like prestige economy. 
in every table was really about, you know, can we open stores in places like Compton and Watts and South Los Angeles, which are amazing, vibrant communities, but are often left outside of the standard functioning system. And just for clar- clarification for listeners, every table is a for-profit, correct? Yeah, well, every table is actually what's called a public benefit corp. Mm-hmm. So it's a for-profit business that has in its charter the uh, mission to also focus on its purpose, which is to make healthy food affordable for everyone. Great. And I think this is an interesting point to emphasize because I often think um, for somebody who might be new to our show or new to thinking about business and social impact, when you're thinking about food deserts, when you're thinking about trying to solve these problems of, of lack of access, often the first thought is, is about a, a nonprofit who's going to do that work. And I think increasingly what we're seeing is people are saying, how can I create a business out of this? What's the what's the angle, and how would I get a revenue stream to make that happen? So, how did well, you? Well, yeah, and by, by the way, I think there's a big reason for that. And, and you know, if if your listeners haven't read Anon Giridaha's book, Winners Take All, they absolutely should. Yeah, we just had him. We on had a him few on the show. Ago. He was spicy. That's so fun. He's <laughs> spicy, but he's right. You know, which is that. You know, in a very real way, nonprofits are set up so that they won't change the structure of the system. And it may or may not be coincidence that the people funding those nonprofits are the people who have benefited from the system the most. Yeah, right. And so, you know, the way I think about it is like, you know, you can name 10 for profit companies that have changed the way we live, whether it's Uber. Airbnb, sure. Amazon, yep. over the last 10 years. Name 10 nonprofits that have changed things on that scale. You can't. No. And, and the reason is not because nonprofit entrepreneurs and workers are not incredible. They are. It's because there is a system, a philanthropic system, that is set up that is more focused on the funders than it is sort of on the work. So talk to us how, about how you found the money for every table. So you didn't go the traditional nonprofit route. Well, so I we did do. start in the nonprofit world. And, and here's what I found is like, you know, I was running a nonprofit. And and this you know, is the, the predecessor out, called Feast, correct? Yeah, it's called Feast and is still sort of expanding today. So I'm really proud of that organization. But what I found was, you know, when I needed to raise money for a foundation, I had to go through each foundation had a different grants process, yep. right? So imagine like the difference between the for-profit world where you create an investor deck and you create a term sheet and that's it. And every investor relies on that. But for the foundation world, you have to do a separate um, grant application for every foundation. And then even once you get those grants, then you have to manage those grants. So you might end up having to hire a grants manager to, to manage all your grants. And then you would also have to hire an events coordinator because one of the key ways to raise money is to throw a big gala and serve really expensive food to really wealthy people. And I just came to believe that that wasn't set up for the benefits of the nonprofits or the people they were serving. Um, and it was a system that sort of wasn't going to wasn't going to be able to take what I needed to do to scale. Yeah, and Sandy and I are nodding because we we both have deep nonprofit experience and and so uh, understand the, deeply the pains and um, complexities and tensions of trying to raise money through grants. It's, yeah, it's very difficult. And for our listeners who who don't have the pleasure of that experience, <laughs> it's sort of think about you know college applications before the Common App. You know, right. at, you know, different schools asking for different essays, and you had to pay to send each one in. Each was a different form. They all had to go hard copy. 
And along came the Common App, and it was, you know, one application form, and that's more like the sort of VC universe where you've got your pitch deck and yep. you've got your term sheet and your rock and roll. So um, well, also, by the way, like to that point, like also a difference is that in the for-profit world, the VCs basically give you the money and then they trust you to do what's best for the business, where in the nonprofit world, you are given a grant to, you know, do this in this community and given a grant to start a garden in this community. And right. it oftentimes has more to do with what the philanthropist thinks is right than the nonprofit person on the ground. And just imagine how crazy that would be if, you know, Wellington Management was calling Jeff Bezos and being like, listen, I need a snack bar for here. And Fidelity's like, I need a car service here. It's just... yeah, yeah, it's sort of like you did well with the books. You can do this, too. Exactly. Yeah. Just, just stretch a little. So so uh, Feast still lives on. I know we want to sh- sort of shift the conversation to talk more about every table, but in the wake of these true and powerful statements about the issues surrounding nonprofit funding. How is Feast funded these days? Yeah, Feast is, um, you know, now, now I can step back and say thank you to all the foundations that, uh, <laughs> that Feast and, and all of the generous individuals. And by the way, I do really want to make this point, which is not that, and, and I, I may dis- disagree with Anand on this a little bit, it is not that the people in the foundations or who are donating the money are bad people or even like not amazing people it is it is just that the culture that has been built is used to functioning a certain way um and so i'm in favor of changing that culture while celebrating those people in the same way that you know i used to work on wall street and a lot of people have a lot of negative things to say about people on wall street but those are still you know to this day some of my best friends absolutely so make, yes yeah, so let's make the transition you go from feast to every table tell us about every table yes. Yeah, so Every Table is a healthy grab-and-go restaurant concept that is about making healthy food affordable and accessible for everyone. And how it works is sort of deceptively simple, which is that, you know, the big costs of a restaurant are how much it costs to build it. It's like a million dollars because you have to build a full kitchen. And then how much it costs to run it. You know, the average Chipotle will have 10 people on staff. Mm -hmm. And then how much space you need. Like the average restaurant is like 2,000 square feet of space. And all of that is expensive overhead that makes it so you've got to charge a lot of money for whatever you're serving. Well, what every table did is said, what if we had just a single central kitchen that supported all of our now eight restaurants, but soon to be hundreds of restaurants? And by doing that, you both you know, create huge economies of scale and efficiencies at the central kitchen where you're making from scratch every single morning incredibly delicious, healthy meals and then packaging them in grab-and-go containers and then sending them to the various restaurants. And so then when you build a restaurant, it sort of looks like a pret in New York um, where it's, you know, all grab-and-go. Mm-hmm. There's maybe 800 square feet of space. There's only two people on staff, which is really all you need, but it's a great restaurant experience. And because of that, um, the cost to operate this whole model is significantly lower than a standard restaurant chain so that we can make healthy food affordable for everyone. But for us, affordability means different things in different neighborhoods. So if you go to Every Table Santa Monica, you will get an incredible kale chicken Caesar salad for seven ninety five. But if you go to Every Table Watts or Compton or Crenshaw or South L.A., you'll get the exact same meal for $5.95. Interesting. Interesting. So that really does, um, the affordability is basically indexed to the, uh, to the community in which you're serving people. 
Yeah, and by the way, that's, first of all, we think sort of like morally just and right, but it's also good business because it means that we can go into all different kinds of communities, and the benefit of our model is that it really benefits from scale. So you have stores in Compton and South L.A. that may be working at lower gross margins, but they're helping the entire margin of the business. And um, one of the really interesting things that we found, we thought that when we opened that, you know, the stores in affluent communities were going to drive a lot of margin and the stores in underserved communities would break even. But, you know, we were doing something that we were proud of. And what we have found is that we can drive real profit at stores in underserved communities um, selling meals at five and a half dollars. And that's because, you know, first of all, we set up the business this way, but also there is this un tapped demand for healthy food in underserved communities. And it turns out that, you know, while some people think that folks in underserved communities really like, you know, fast food, the, the truth is, first of all, that we all really like fast food. Um, and second, <laughs> Keeping it real on dollars and change. <laughs> and, and then the second of all, what is also true is that people there like food that costs five bucks. Well, and I, I, think, and I, I, I love that point. I really do love that point because then, then it's just really opening it up. And what can I get for that five bucks? You yeah. Know, if it's yeah. two apples or a McDonald's something or other, you know, Happy Meal, I'm yep. hungry. We're, yep. we're, 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 we're providing people access to – so our best-selling hot plate is a Jamaican jerk chicken with coconut beans and rice. Oh, I'm hungry. Um, one of our best-selling salads in underserved communities is a salmon superfood salad that is incredibly delicious and incredibly healthy. Yeah, and and the delicious is an important point. I had you know lots of conversations about food deserts and poverty and health, and one of the points is, you know, it's not necessarily a lack of education about what's healthy, but if you don't have that much money for food, you can't take a shot that your family doesn't eat what you put on the table because right. it doesn't taste good. Right, right. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and so there yeah. is a, some de-risking to making it, uh, you know, appetizing and, and good to eat. I'm curious, and I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking here in this great conversation about uh, food, food deserts, and food accessibility to Sam Polk, who's the founder and CEO of Every Table. Sam, I'm curious about the the moment of design thinking that uh, shifted you from, you know, getting produce and getting, you know, food to people into the model of prepared mm -hmm. fast food style. When did you realize that was ne the, the sort of like the necessary component of making this uh, what people really need? You know, I, I think it was through the sort of nonprofit work and my I, I, to, ta to talk about what you said previously, like I, I came to understand that people were they, they often thought that you know, yeah, to, to, to solve a food desert crisis, you've got to, you know, educate some people or you've got to bring produce in. And, you know, on the west side of L.A., I would see these amazing fast casual options like sweet green and tender greens and tokaya and every detail of the menu, of the customer experience, of the brand had been deeply thought through. And the idea that you were going to go into an underserved community and open, you know, a produce market on a on a food truck instead of doing that same level of design and focus and really hospitality and and menu development. Um, you know, I just came to understand that we needed to treat this like what it was, which was a business that was about was about celebrating and, and pleasing our customers, which happened to be customers all over the city of Los Angeles, but especially 
the um, incredible customers in Watts and Compton and South Central Los Angeles. So, Sam, then I, I have a question, and it's because I'm getting hungry, I think. So who does the taste <laughs> testing? How do, you, how do you decide? I mean, the meals sound delicious, but how do you uh, taste them with people in Watts as well as Compton, right? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, all of our R&D from the beginning has been in conjunction with the communities that we serve. So in the beginning, it was the groups that we were working with at Feast who became oh, sure. our first taste testers. That makes sense. And then now we have like an open R&D system where we ask our customers for their ideas about meals, and then we just make it for them. And then secondarily, our most successful bowl right now is a collaboration bowl with these two incredible world-class chefs from Compton who started a food truck business out of their mom's kitchen that ended up getting them 300,000 Instagram followers. And they, with us, made the Trap Kitchen Chicken Curry Bowl, which is by far our number one bestseller. When are you coming to Philadelphia? Yeah, as soon as we can. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. One thing I love about this model is the acknowledgement of time scarcity. Absolutely. That is just, you know, trending in one direction in this society, regardless of socioeconomic status and, you know, the user experience, you know, design and testing that you put into place saying, look, it's not just getting people healthy food, it's getting it to them in a way that works for their lifestyle. So if you're thinking about someone, you know, picking up their kids from a daycare at 515, school after school programs at 530, and then picking up a second job at 8 p.m., bedtime baths. You know, whatever yeah. needs to happen in between there, the vision is not buying healthy produce at that food truck produce stand and getting it. You know, it's getting people something they can afford that's healthy and, and, and delicious. Ser- served quickly in yeah. a way that works for them and their family. So I think that's re- just very, very brilliant. Well, it reminds me we had a previous guest on who said it was, uh, it was about making the, the good choice easy. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, that it's sort of, you, <laughs> you know. If there's nothing else and I'm starving, I'm I'm going to make the bad choice yep. because it's just like I've just got to have something right now. We were, you know? Cheryl and I, having a conversation in our <laughs> office today. What would we all do in our lives if money were no object? And one of the, I said I would have a chef because I would <laughs> to happily, cook an omelet. <laughs> I'd happily choose, yeah, that omelet over this granola bar in the car for breakfast if someone took well, the time the to way, prepare it for me. That, like that's sort of what we think about at every table is really like America's private chef. And what I mean is that. We also, in addition to our restaurant business, we also have a subscription delivery business where let's say you live in Compton and you don't have time to go to the restaurant. You can order six meals every week, just like a Blue Apron order, except what, what appears on your porch is a, a beautiful box with incredibly delicious prepared food in it um, for the same price that you get it in store. And we're just starting this. But wow. We think that this is going to be absolutely game changing because if you think about like Blue Apron, like, you know, $12 and you have to cook. I mean, there is a very, you know, first of all, a very affluent customer base is the only one that can afford that. But what if you had $6 prepared meals that are restaurant quality and incredibly healthy and delicious delivered on your doorstep every week? I think I mean, you are talking to your first two Philadelphia <laughs> customers. If you if you can get out here, Sam, Cheryl and I are like, yes, yes, yes. yes. I, would, I would have it delivered to the office. I know. To have healthy meals. You, well, know. you know what's funny? Actually, we're, we're, so, so we are sort of like evolving into an omni-channel brand because what we do in offices is we put a branded every table smart fridge in the office. And whenever oh. you're <laughs> you just swipe a credit card, pull out what you want, and your credit card gets charged for that. And we just started this business, and I'm telling you, it's exploding. I can't imagine. I mean, I just I can't imagine why not. We, you know, we see, and there's an emerging body of literature around 
the cost of preventative health for your employees versus, yeah. you know, the, the sort of downstream impact of poor health. Um, well, you didn't think about that in terms of the time. Like, let's say you're an employee and you make $100,000 a year, which is something like $50-ish an hour. You know, if you're going out to pick up food every day for half an hour during lunch, your employer is... Cheryl's looking at me. <laughs> no, you it's know? true. That's, that, yep. So now, so now we just bring we bring the meals to you to do exactly what you said to make the healthy choice, also the most affordable and the most convenient, and that's what's going to change the world. I wish I could remember where I read this so I could credit it appropriately. So please do write, tweet, or call in if you are the person who said this to me. But someone said, "I'm not going to pay a lot of money anymore for food that is bad for me and doesn't taste good." Three dimensions, you know, high cost, poor nutrition, low, you know, taste. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of staggering how often people hit we'll that, that negative trifecta of, well, you know, I I'm did in a last rush night. <laughs> and here I am. Yeah. And it's like, shoot, before you know it, money's yeah. down the drain, poor health decision, and you're not even that happy with what you put in your body. I'm curious, and I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking here in this great conversation about uh, food, food deserts, and food accessibility to Sam Polk, who's the founder and CEO of Every Table. So this is really cool. Sam, I recognize that many of our listeners are going... All right. Well, it must be nice to be in one of these towns, Sam. But we're, you know, I'm here in Philadelphia. Or I'm here in, you know, uh, Kansas. Shout out to Nick since he's not hosting today. We like to get get a Kansas shout out in. What you know? What's some advice for listeners on how they could think about food, nutrition, accessibility if they can't be customers of Every Table yet? Well, I mean, this may be self-serving, but I would like to talk to them. And, and here's what I mean is I don't know if you guys have looked into this Opportunity Zone stuff, but yeah. it's incredible tax legislation. Yeah. So one of the ways that we are going to expand is we are going to we are basically going to create Opportunity Zone subsidiary businesses. So we'll go to Philadelphia, for example, and say, hey, Mayor of Philadelphia, if you can line up some – uh, financing from a foundation to build our kitchen and some opportunity zone equity investments, we will create a kitchen and open 20 stores across Philadelphia over the next couple of years. Wow. And basically solve the food desert. I don't want to say that, but we will basically put a put big dent healthy, yeah. affordable food in every community. Challenge on. Um, We've got work to do, Sandy. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a nice little lineup. And I think. If it's not already summarized somewhere, you know, on your website or in some sort of email or downloadable, that's the that's the hit list you want for people like us and other change makers in cities to be able to take that list and say, how do we make this happen here? Uh, what are you doing to build an evidence base, Sam, around the impact of your organization? I mean, you've got some very clear metrics, which are sales and sales volume and you know, maybe some customer demographics, but, you know, are you able to measure and track an impact on customer health, customer, yeah, you know, well-being? I'm glad you asked that. Like our, our Series A was Would you like our students to do this project with you? I mean, it's fascinating <laughs> well, stuff. Well, I would like that. But yeah, like our Series A was led by an impact investing uh, venture capital firm. We have some criteria that we sort of keep with them that includes sales, which to your point is really the main driver of impact. Um, but also includes our hiring practices and our diversity and stuff like that. Um, but I also will say that, that you know, I would really encourage young entrepreneurs to figure out business models that the, the core of the business is the impact. Yeah, because the last step. Really, yeah, is, is the revenue and profitability there? And if it is, then you're doing 
doing what you were meant to do, and you can grow it. Yeah, and 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 I think to that point, it becomes obvious because I was going to ask about do you track repeat customers, right? Because that's one of the sort of indicators that they tried it once, they like it, yep. they're going to buy it more, so that means that they're going to get more and more healthy food. So, yeah, and that's what we don't track that because of our impact metrics. We track that because we value company loyalty, and that's how to build a profitable business. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Sam, what is next? You talked a little bit about the in-office model. You told us a little bit about how you're thinking about growth to some opportunity zones. Anything else in our last couple minutes here that you want to highlight that's coming around the bend for every table? You know, here's what I would say. I'd say two things. Like, we are on a mission to um, push against the structural inequality in the world. And right now we're doing that through the price of our food and the location of it. But over time, um, we're going to develop a franchise program focused on entrepreneurs of color from underserved communities. Because, you know, when you talk about inequality, $15 an hour jobs are good, but they're really not changing things in the way it needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. It's and not wealth if- building. What, yeah, what if our growth was based on equity ownership of entrepreneurs who might, who are incredibly talented and determined, but might not have the same access to capital that, you know, folks that go to war? Oh, and we know they don't. You know, there's all that evidence that they don't have the same access to capital. So right. I love that vision. Very cool. Well, we will be sure to stay in touch with you, Sam, because I think there are many dimensions of this business and business model that we are finding intriguing. Um, and we will certainly certainly stay in touch, maybe have you back on next year to talk about some updates and where every table is today. Where can our listeners find more information and maybe a, a hot meal? Yeah, everytable.com. All right. And Great. if you're outside of California, no luck yet. Um, but I'm sure you can find them on social media, maybe copy the recipes at home for now. Sam, thank you so much for joining us here on Dollars and Change, Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.